Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined in studio with a very official looking microphone by Ellison Wiest. I'm loving this new microphone. <laughs> that usually we have when there's two of us in the studio, they're usually mounted and mine stays permanently mounted on the desk that's here in the guest bedroom slash recording studio slash uh, storage room for the Mother Runner store. But you have a handheld. You look like, you know, you're ready to go on the nightly news and record on some incoming hurricane or something. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you. (laughs) So, uh, so E, you brought along some books. What you've been reading? I have. I have. The first one that I definitely want to mention is one that I was a little hesitant to read. It's The Bright Hour by Nina Riggs. And it's subtitled A Memory of Living and Dying. And yes, it is uh, a cancer memoir. But I have to tell you, um, it, I think a lot of women are going to, a lot of our listeners may be a little nervous because of the fact that it's a young mother uh, who has, has cancer um, and two young sons. But it is so beautifully written. Uh, Nina Riggs is actually a direct descendant of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's beautifully written. It's not, um, she really doesn't dwell, although it is a memoir of, of cancer, she doesn't dwell on a lot of the um, tougher points. And I, I, I really think, especially for listeners who enjoyed When Breath Becomes Air, um, I cannot recommend this enough and really I can't recommend it enough for anyone so that was has been really the highlight of my reading probably over the past six weeks or so. It's been getting great reviews. Oh it's 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 wonderful it really Mm -hmm. is and as many listeners recall and as you know I am not a huge memoir fan but this one tops of the list for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there are two novels that I enjoyed. Um, One of them is Signs for Lost Children by Sarah Moss and just another shout out to Europa Editions, who I feel just <laughs> continues to really hit the bar. Um, this is historical fiction. Oh, it's um, it really deals with a young couple that is married in England in the late 1800s and are almost immediately separated. The husband uh, goes off to Japan for work, and his wife is is left behind, and she uh, is actually a medical doctor, which was extremely unusual in those times, who decides that she wants to deal with mentally ill women. And so it uh, toggles back and forth between the two, and just lovely writing, uh, really a fantastic story, a little... um, I don't want to say slow moving. I want to say languid in the best possible way. <laughs> languid uh, is good for the summertime. It is. It is. Um, so, and then switching to uh, more recent times is Saints for All Occasions, which is the new one by J. Courtney Sullivan. And mm-hmm. I know you're a fan of hers. Yep. 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 Yeah. I read Maine, and didn't we? So she she is the one who wrote that. Um, the engage in, the engage engagements. engagement or engagement. I think is what it's yeah. called. If we can look, but yeah, and you enjoyed. I think engagement more. I loved engagement, and I enjoyed Maine more. Here, yeah. I'm going to pass yeah, yeah. you the to, book, yeah, yeah. and so you can, can look, look at it because I don't have to hold my mic. Ellison. That's right. That's yeah. right. You're so, in yeah. so it's the engagements, which I love. Right. And you really enjoyed Maine, and I did not. I kind of want to um, yeah. throat punch some of the characters in that book. 
and then um, <laughs> commencement. That was, I believe, that was her debut. It was, and I don't, I don't think I've read it. I did read it. I thought it was good for a debut. Uh-huh. Um, now this one deals uh, with a Boston family. Um, uh, two sisters come over from Ireland in the 1950s. Um, and it, it deals with with what happens to the younger sister in particular, um, and their lives, how their lives are influenced by this one mistake that she makes, hmm. um, and it goes up into um, 2009. And I really think she captures a lot about what it means to be family and really what it means to fiercely love someone and then eventually become estranged from them. Um, so... I would have to say that possibly I liked Maine a little more, but I oh. think this one um, will appeal to particularly to people in book clubs. Oh, okay. It really is going to raise a lot of issues and a lot of questions. I think that uh, book clubs in particular would will really I like, like it, it when a novel does that. Sometimes um, I really like a book club that features on, focuses on like themes and ideas, not just the plot. Like, oh, did you like that person? Right. And I'm not making fun of anyone in my book club. Um, but but that that just the and the, it's how you and I know each other is from a book club. That's exactly right. So um, so I'm very grateful for book clubs. But sometimes it just seems very surfacey. Yes. And I I kind of like to I like to have a novel that you can really kind of sink your teeth into for a book group. Definitely can on this. I mean, this raises questions of um, illegitimacy, uh, you know, unwanted pregnancy, uh, family dynamics, mm. which I. I'm always so fascinated by. I've really become fascinated lately with what makes a family, you know, the family you're mm-hmm. born into and then the family, i.e. the tribe that, mm-hmm. that you make on your own. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, that kind of leads right into the book that I've been listening to. Yes. Um, on a on a not a positive note, um, the in terms of the family you choose to go into, uh, I've been listening to um, a non- nonfiction audio book called The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And um, I don't know whether it's that I lived in San Francisco about 10 years after that tragedy. That's when I first moved there or that, I don't know, um, or the age that I am. I just, that the Jonestown tragedy just really stands out in my mind. Yeah. I just, oh, I remember the Newsweek cover of it. And oh my, I mean, it was just oh, horrifying. So, hor- just beyond, beyond yeah. imaginable. And so this um, really well-written, um, really... Um, like it's easy to listen to I mean as a as a hard topic but I mean it's not like a convoluted um like oh I'm not smart enough to listen to this nonfiction book and so it really starts way back I mean it starts with Jim Jones's parents and oh. so yeah so and his um father was a World War One vet that um was seriously damaged by nerve not nerve gas but mustard gas on the um you know battlefield or the in the trenches of World War One and so um oh my gosh so that really traces yeah oh and you everything. know that his mother had been married twice before she had jim jones and that um oh that she always felt he was kind of destined you know one of those oh my child's destined to be you know for greatness type thing oh boy and um oh boy i mean just ah and also all the all the politicians who were you know, almost rightly um, really endorsing what he was doing. I mean, Jim Jones, for all his horrifyingness, he did a, a lot, a lot of good right, for social beginning. causes. Right, that's what I, mean, I understand. Really, I mean, he he was a, a, like a real leader in integration in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And then doing so much for, you know, 
uh, minorities and inner city poor in Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles. I mean, he really lifted a lot of people up, but then, I mean, oh, I mean, it's almost, it's terrible. Like I'll be thinking, I'll be like, oh, that was a really great thing he did. It's like, no, 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 he's a terrible, terrible human being. But, um, so it has, um, Molly's injured. So, uh, it has been keeping me company. Um, oh, so, yeah. get better, Molly. Yeah, I know, oh. I know, I know. So it's kind of a, um, one of those, like, well, what's really going on? It's um, She has a lot of um, just along her IT band, her right IT band, and the right side of her knee, and she has some, like, popping noise. And so she's actually seeing um, a really well-respected um, physical therapist um, in an office that her daughter works at down in um, Corvallis okay. um, on Wednesday, and she's been... Um, She's been doing a lot of things, but we haven't been able to run together for a while. Shoot. I wondered why I hadn't seen you guys in my neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. So I've been up there solo. Um, Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and all the change that I find doesn't doesn't replace Molly by a long stretch. That's good to hear. Yes, exactly. I'd rather have Molly than all the change, all the hashtag found change. Um, So, but hey, before we move on, I want to um, promo that our annual summer reading podcast will air July 21. And this week on Facebook, Mary Eberhardt said she hoped to as soon as she always enjoys your suggestions, Allison. Oh, great, Mary. So she specifically asked uh, when it was. Oh, good, good. Yeah, well, we're excited about it. I know I am. And it's an excuse to to read all the time. (laughs) Oh, I'm doing it for work. I'm doing it for work. Um, That's good to hear. Yeah, so and I've been keeping notes because I so often I'm like, yeah, I don't remember what I read. (laughs) So, um, So I want you to talk about... You have been doing improv classes for a while. I have. And then speaking of work, you said to me the other day, like, oh, yeah, well, I'm on deadline. I was like, oh, for what? Sketch comedy writing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah, no, I... uh... I had a big birthday recently, and uh, that has had me thinking the last year, and so I always enjoyed acting, and uh-huh. I just decided back in September, you know what, I'm going to take an improv class. Uh-huh. Took it, loved it, took three more, um, have had a blast, and it, you actually saw me I graduate. <laughs> yeah, <my laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. I took John, and we had such fun. You yeah. were so, you were the, you were by, this broke up into two teams. I mean, you were by far the hit oh, on your team. Oh, well, it was fun. It was fun, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a little, I walked out, and oh, there's Sarah. <laughs> I know, front and center. <laughs> right. It was a very intimate theater. <laughs> it was, it is, it is. And then I just uh, had decided, well, what the heck, I'm going to, you know, take a sketch comedy writing class. At and the same place? No, actually at a different place. Okay. Uh, I took the improv at um, Comedy Sports Portland, which I highly, highly recommend. And I'm taking the sketch comedy writing at Brody Theater again okay. and loving it. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good. So, yeah. like, how many weeks is it? Like, what's involved? Um, the first class just ended, um, and we're going to have a show on July 6th, I believe. So that was seven weeks. Most improv classes uh, for beginners will, will us- are usually about six weeks. And um, I loved the class and loved the camaraderie. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that was evident from watching it. Oh, yeah. so much fun, so much uh-huh. fun, and it's just you know I used to act as a as a as a youngster and a, and a teenager, and I think sometimes it's good just to sort of get back to things that uh-huh. really gave you a lot of pleasure and joy when you were. And I really think that uh, women, in particular, do not do that enough. Yep. Um, and yep. we tend to think, oh, that was then, and just sort of shove it under a mm-hmm. you know a pillow or a bushel barrel or whatever. Right. And right. 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 Well. I also think, um, I you know, I 
I like that you feel that it harkens back, but I also like that you, in my mind, have taken on something new. Yes, and you know. and something that scared me, and that's the yeah, one that thing that I've decided. Bit, yeah. It does. That's the one thing that I've decided is you know sort of feel the fear mm-hmm. and do it anyway. I think feel it was the fear. I like that. Yeah, and I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said. Um, something about do something that you fear once a day or mm-hmm. and I know I'm botching it and I hope a reader will uh, put something up on or a listener yeah uh-huh. a listener yeah. excuse me yeah see I keep thinking about the, the summer books. reading the books, books, the, books, the, books. the books the books and there's a great book by Susan Jeffries uh, called feel the fear and do oh. it anyway uh-huh. um, and I highly recommend that as well uh, oh, okay. it really does stretch you okay hey and and Call me ignorant, but what exactly is sketch comedy? Like, it's not like you're drawing a picture of funny situations. No, I think um, if anybody's seen Key and Peele, uh, me some Key or, and Peel. uh-huh. uh, you know, the Amy Schumer uh-huh. uh, show, um, and hearkening back to Mr. Show, which was Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. Whoa. Um, okay. It's really just... Uh, David Cross of Arrested Development fame. That's exactly and right. The Blue Man that's Group exactly guy. exactly right. Yeah. It's really um, uh, something, or, you know, SNL, um, okay. Saturday Night Live. Uh, that's sketch comedy. Okay. Okay. Um, so you're talking about something that usually lasts, you know, three to four minutes. Okay. And uh, is... Like vignettes. Yes. Uh-huh. Funny. Okay. Uh-huh. Hopefully. Fun, funny vignettes. Hopefully. Vin- yeah. Funny <laughs> vignettes. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Say, whenever I think of improv classes, I always think of Michael Scott on The Office because he, he did improv oh, classes. that's right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and My he gosh. was such a bomb. And right. <laughs> such oh, a God. Brick. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't think of that before I took the classes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's awesome. So, and then when you came in the back door, we started talking about something, and I said, "Save it for the podcast." Victoria, well, Victoria, thank you very much. Yes, All yes, right. I um, met Victoria, British Columbia, Victoria. not Victoria like Beckham, right? Let's say uh-huh, uh, yes, yeah. exactly. We'll save her for later. <laughs> um, my best friend and I, uh, Monica, who I've referenced before, she Your lives former running in, partner. Yes, my former running partner who now lives in Sweden. She had a conference in Victoria, BC, so we met up there several days early um neither of us had ever been to victoria Mm -hmm. i used to live in canada but in ontario and nova scotia and i am in love and as i said to you (laughs) if anything happens to my very very beloved husband i am looking for a unmarried man on (laughs) vancouver island because (laughs) victoria bc if anybody and i'm sure uh, many people have been there and understand what I'm talking about. I mean, you've been there several times. Yep. Lovely city. It um, is so beautiful. Just amazing. Yeah. And so to be clear, so so they're um, it and Vancouver, British Columbia, they're both in the province of British Columbia. Right. And Victoria is on Vancouver Island, although Vancouver, BC is not on That's correct. It's a little confusing. Yeah, it is a little so confusing. I had to pull out the map. Yeah. And not to be confused with <laughs> Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river from Exa- Portland. And is very different from Vancouver, <laughs> BC. Yes. Um, um, yeah. So so, um, so, and Vancouver Island's quite large. It's, uh, it I think, is. Two, 235 miles, maybe? Yeah, long. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And Victoria's down at the very, very bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, we did not get to go up and explore uh, on the island. But, I mean, my gosh, this the city alone. Oh, so pretty. It's right there phenomenal. on the harbor. Oh, and we were right next to it. We had a little B&B uh, just literally a block Oh wow! Uh, from the bay, oh, well, right on well, Johnson Street. Okay, all yeah. right. Yeah, oh, nice. and the food. The food. I was just about to say. Oh my gosh! Oh my such word. Oh, and know. you know, talking about uh, coffee, I was thinking about that. We 
um, I'm coming off of a bad Starbucks, uh, you know, decades long thing, but Monica, who is a foodie and a, what would you call her, a coffee e, oh. <laughs> she introduced me to some great coffee spots there too. Oh, and wine. Oh goodness. We could go on and on, but yeah, I can't say enough about we, it. Um, so when Jack and I went there, so the first time, so it was one of those places that, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an ordeal to get to because you have to take a ferry, but ferries I think are so much fun. Um, right. And so you can either take a ferry from Seattle or from Port Angeles, which yes. is on the tip of the Olympic Peninsula. And um, and so then we've also taken the ferry from Seattle. You can also, you could fly there. Flights are That's not all that I expensive did. from here. I did. I right, flew. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so, but it's one of those things that I'm like, okay, why did I like live in Portland for, I don't know, um, 15 years before I ever went there. Yeah. And so, so when I went up there to qualify for Boston, um, and, uh, I took just Jack along. We didn't take the kids along and we just had so much fun, like going out for happy hour, like cocktails yeah. and, um, I didn't drink all the much. Tapas. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. Everything. Oh yeah. Just little nibbles. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, so we went to this one place I'm forgetting the name of, but it is right down by the Harbor kind of near the, um, information kiosk and um it's actually right across from the empress the okay empress um that's what it's called right yeah empress? the empress yeah. oh which yes, is the, lovely yeah, right, which is near parliament right. right exactly so and that is i should side note it looks very european because it has it this does. quite large it's a very small city but it has such large few large buildings and here in the states you don't get too many except in like dc you don't get it, some grand kind of European type. No, it definitely has a European fleet because it flavor. is the head of um, it's the government center of British Columbia. Yes, and so it was across from the Empress, and we went there. And Jack had Jack loves martinis. He loves vodka martinis because gin makes him mean. He says, "Mr. Ooh. Nice Jack is the one thing that makes <laughs> him mean." And um, he had um, a pickled ramp. In uh, which you know, yes. ramp is in the onion family, yes. which I don't know the real word. What's the real word for onions? There's no a idea. Word that means kind of like leeks and all those things. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone's yelling it out as they're running right now. <laughs> um, as, uh, so he had pickled ramps, and it was this really intriguing shape. And um, oh, it was, and we just love pickled things. And oh boy, so oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was fun. And then there's you know, it's a great place to take kids. We've taken the kids there two spring breaks in a row. There's fun like candy shops, and there's this waffle oh this this waffle place that is run by this husband and wife and they won the they told us they won uh canada's equivalent of shark week oh and not shark week shark tank sorry okay. shark tank um what is that what does sharks have to do with waffles um and so but um i guess the investor didn't come through so they <gasps> still have kind of like just a little true mom and pop type place but oh, oh goodness they are just delicious oh yeah the food is un real yeah. and, and we, some yeah. of it the food that we had the, the best meal we had i think cost us about a third well i was about what. to say because our the u.s dollar is very strong against oh yeah oh yeah so now all our canadian listeners are yelling at us for that one but yeah. um <laughs> yeah well the, you it's know. not our fault <laughs> no. and i have to say that everybody was so nice oh, so and nice. i know that canadians yeah. as a whole you guys i love you i love you i love you but i was just Amazed yeah. by how many people we would say to a server, "Well, tell us where you like to eat," and they would come back with a list of five places, <laughs> yeah. a list, a yeah. handwritten yeah. list, yeah, not right. just you know, sure. sort of, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they and great running there, and, yes, and cycling. Yes, and um, there's. Yes. The, did you see the enormous um, totem pole? 
Yeah, we did, but I think we kind of buzzed by that, and we did not go to Bouchard Gardens. I oh, know Bouchard everybody Gardens, at Bouchard uh-huh. Gardens, everybody's going to be yelling. I've never been there either because oh. um, it there's just, always so much else to do. <laughs> and also, it's unless you have a car, it's you know right. got to take a bus to get out That's there. Right. Yeah, and um, I definitely you know I love flowers, so I do want to go there. But like the, every time I tell the kids like oh we're gonna go to this gardens they get this look like mm, mom mm-hmm. we're not gonna do that yeah so um i also love um we finally went to the museum there the natural history museum oh. and um i just love um the canadians um the first peoples i find that yes. very intriguing and it's so different than na- how native american history is presented in the u.s you're exactly right and i just find th- i find the topic intriguing and i find the presentation intriguing um so um so yeah kudos to canadians for yes. how they handle that so yes. um yeah so that was a very so molly had encouraged me to go to that so yeah i mean there's just it's just a great town to just walk around in it oh just gosh stroll. we walked i mean one day i think uh i looked at my watch and we had walked like 10 and a half miles oh and it goodness. wasn't even like five you know four or five o'clock <laughs> oh my goodness and you know this is in June, so the sun didn't set till almost oh, nine o'clock yep. up there. So, yep, it, yeah. we're recording this on the longest day of the year, right? So I was thinking about that this morning about how light it gets up there so yeah. early. So yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'll yeah. be back. So, yeah, good, 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 good. Maybe one day we'll road trip there. Hey, yeah, yeah you're yeah, talking. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, well, our guest today is one of my professional idols, Gretchen Reynolds, the phys ed columnist for the New York Times, and a frequent former contributor to Outside Magazine. Gretchen is the author of the 2012 New York Times bestseller, The First 20 Minutes. She's a mother runner. Ellison and I will chat with Gretchen about a wide variety of training topics after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome, Gretchen. Ellison and I are so happy to be talking with you. We are both massive fans of your writing. Well, thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, Gretchen, let's start off by having you tell us about your family and your running and cycling. (laughs) Well, I'm married, and I'm married to a a man who actually introduced me to mountain biking. Um, And so we used to spend a lot of time mountain bike racing. But then we had a son, and um, it it becomes more difficult. And so I've I've been a runner, actually, most of my adult life. Um, I really started running in college. I did some in high school. But I started running a lot in college, um, mostly for stress relief, a, a little bit for weight control, <laughs> just to, to be perfectly honest. Uh-huh. And I've, I've run pretty consistently ever since. Um, I still really like to mountain bike. I, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. Uh-huh. And when I run, it's almost always on trails. and usually with my two dogs who are much faster than I am. (laughs) I'm a dog lover. What type of dogs are they? I have a golden retriever and a mini Aussie Shepherd. Oh, I keep hearing about minis. I'll I'll, I'll have to look into those. Wonderful with the, the one caveat that they have such a strong herding instinct that he practically knocks me over. He's at my heels all the time, which, I mean, it's great. He never runs off, but you do have to make sure you don't trip over them. Right. And you're running at an elevation then of what, over about 7,000 feet? Yeah. Yep. It's about 7,000. Wow. Yeah. Hats off to you. uh... (laughs) Well, thank you. I actually am planning to do my my first real race in a while this year. I'm actually going to run a half marathon um, in Big Sur, 
Oh, and lovely. It, partly because, although it's hilly, it's sea level. Yeah, it sure <laughs> yes. is. When you can see the ocean, that counts as, as sea level. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're at about 200 feet or something there. Um, so, and S- Santa Fe, so did you and Dimity know each other when she lived there or no? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Her oh, yeah, husband I so. and I both worked at Outside Magazine. That's so, what I figured. Yes. Yeah. we Dimity, I... For for people who haven't met Dimity, Dimity is very tall, and so mm-hmm. my yep. husband and I used to try and draft behind her when we would do the <laughs> Santa Fe Century bike ride out here. It's nice. just a wonderful way to break the wind for you. <laughs> that Dimity, she can always be counted to break wind. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So um, so online somewhere I read a great description of what you do in your New York Times columns. It says she debunks myths, spurs conversation, and stirs controversy by questioning widely held beliefs about exercise. Um, how would you describe what you write about for the Times, and, and how do you end up doing it? And how'd you end well, up there? The, the one thing I would want to clarify in that is what I think I do is, is I really report on the scientists who are debunking mm-hmm. the myths and that sort of thing. I'm not out doing the research, but mm-hmm. I try really hard to find new and interesting science that looks at how we can help our bodies to work better. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a very broad mandate. Obviously, I can write about anything from going for a walk to running marathons to just sitting less. Mm -hmm. But the key for me is that I really do want it to have been scientifically examined. It's not Mm -hmm. just someone's opinion. I mm-hmm. always write about newly published science that has appeared in a peer-reviewed journal. And one of the reasons that I can do this and that I never seem to run out of material is that exercise science is becoming a really big part of sort of the scientific community. Oh, I think. Why do you think that is, well, Gretchen? I think partly because a lot of scientists are have, you know, grown up exercising um, and they actually are also interested in how their body works and also we've gotten a whole new raft of tools that can be used to look literally inside the cells in our body and so we can see what effect moving and not moving have on every aspect of your body beginning with your DNA and none Mm -hmm. of that was possible 20 years ago. And so what people, what the scientists are learning is really profound and also mm-hmm. allows them to debunk a lot of myths about how fitness works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems to me like you must have a very finely tuned bullshit meter. <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming more finely tuned all the time. <laughs> and again, one of the, the, ways that I avoid or try to avoid bullshit is I do rely on published science. I'm, I'm not just, I mean, I, I, I have no desire to say anything mean about trainer, personal trainers or anything. Some of them are fabulous and some of them are doing great work in fitness, but everything mm-hmm. they do is anecdotal. It's their opinion mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how you should become more fit, how you should run, how you should train. I'm really interested in the science that looks at that, that does randomized controlled trials of things to see if, for instance, stretching really helps or doesn't help. 
It's not just a matter of someone's opinion. And so there are a lot of issues related to running and fitness in general that I think a lot of us thought were settled. And it turns out that in many instances, we were wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, before we dive into more content-related questions, I wanted to let you and, and the listeners know. So, E and I could probably ask you from memory about articles you wrote years ago. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to stick to your more recent body of work, um, such as you just wrote in this week's paper um, about a study that looked at whether taking hot baths might be an effective way to cope with hot weather workouts. And um, the research involved running fast 5Ks on a treadmill in a 90-degree room, Ugh. which does not sound pleasant. Um, and so enlighten us on the findings and what was your takeaway as a runner? <laughs> well, my first takeaway is that it's actually more than 90 degrees um, in Santa Fe where I live today. So it's very oh relevant my to my wow. life. Um, wow. what, one of the things that clearly happens across a season of running is you're running in different temperatures, obviously, uh, assuming uh -huh. you're not running on a treadmill inside. And the, the body does have to cope with that. And anyone who runs regularly knows that as soon as the temperature soars, the run that you were doing a month ago feels much, much harder. And that's mm -hmm. partly because your body does have to work harder to deal with the heat that you are generating. And you, you generate a lot of internal heat and the uh, heart has to work harder to move the blood to your skin so that you can dissipate some of that heat. You have to sweat more. It's just harder to deal with the same amount of exercise in the heat um, mm -hmm. as it was when it was less hot. And so a, a lot of scientists as, as well as coaches and athletes are very interested in how to help people deal with exercising in the heat, especially if they're competing. Because most of us, if it's really hot, we can just go to the gym and do a run inside on the treadmill, even if it's mm -hmm. dull. But mm -hmm. if, you, if you're racing, if you have a competition coming up, it's going to be outside. So the, the issue that the study, the study you mentioned was looking at is what is the best potential way to help your body deal with exercise in the heat and particularly a race in the heat. So they were looking at simulated 5K races and they brought these poor people in and as you said, <laughs> they had them run in a, a very overheated gym on treadmills and 90 degrees if you're not used to that is feels really hard yep and so the first run that they did was slower than their usual um, 5k pace and so then the scientists wanted to see whether it would be effective to basically just cool down the outside of their body if that would help enough that's called pre-cooling um, mm -hmm. pretty obviously and, and the idea with that is you cool down your skin and maybe if your skin is cool then you can run farther faster in the heat without feeling terrible and so they had them do a really elaborate form of pre-cooling where they stuck their arms in cold water and they <laughs> wore ice vests and they wore frozen underwear um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shorts that you throw into the the freezer that have ice packs um, on the thighs oh, and Lord. they did that for 20 minutes which is pretty elaborate 
But then they were, when they re-ran the 5K, they were definitely faster than when they did not pre-cool. Uh-huh. But then they also had them do what most of us have heard we should do, which is acclimate. And the way you acclimate to the heat is you essentially introduce yourself to it uh, somewhat slowly over the course of at least five or six days, um, preferably as much as two weeks until your body feels comfortable in the heat. And in this case, they actually had them <laughs> cycle in a gym that were, or in a lab that was even hotter, it was oh. about 94 degrees, oh. at, at a very easy pace for about five days and until they were acclimated, their bodies were more used to the heat. And they ran again and they were faster. They were faster mm-hmm. when they had pre-cooled, they were faster than when they had not done anything and they mm-hmm. felt better. So, and, and then for a final one, I, I won't go into this at length, but for a final run, they had them do both. They pre-cooled and they were acclimated and they weren't a whole lot faster at that point. So acclimation seems to be the key to helping your body do well in the heat. A lot of us don't want to acclimate. It's not all that pleasant to be working out for a prolonged period of time in hot weather. So what the scientists told me is one way to help yourself acclimate that's easier is go for a gentle run, maybe half an hour in the heat at an easy pace and then get in a hot bath. Mm. And this is a hot bath, like 105 degrees and Mm. lay there for 30 minutes because that, oh, wow. keeps your, that keeps your internal heat fairly high, your, um, your internal core temperature. So your huh. body essentially thinks you're still outside working out and goes through all of the molecular issues that are involved in helping you to acclimate without you having to be outside in the right. heat. <laughs> but you can be reclining and have a, in, have a book and maybe... Uh-huh, yeah, maybe, maybe glass a glass of beverage. wine. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking, yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow, wow, oh my goodness. So so then I got to follow up to that running in the heat question uh, with this um, uh, debate, the slushy versus frozen <laughs> underwear. And, and, and I'm, intri- I'm intrigued that it's actual, I thought it was just like, get your sports bra and just get it a little damp and then literally put it in the freezer. Like, I didn't realize it was like special underwear. You can't, people do get their uh-huh. sports bra wet and freeze it. Uh, the problem is it gets really stiff. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you can buy sports bras that have little padded pockets where you can put ice, um, uh-huh. you know, ice vest sort of thing. But that's another instance of is how do you pre-cool? What's the best mm-hmm. way to sort of lower your, your either your skin or your internal temperature and hopefully be able to go longer out in the heat? Um, and a lot of people really like slushies um, because it does <laughs> tend to make you feel as if you're cooler. But the evidence is really, really skimpy that it actually helps. Um, the, the same scientists that I talked to for this, the new study, did a study a few years ago of exactly that question, which is slushies or frozen underwear, um, <laughs> and had runners try both. They, they would have a slushy um, about 20 minutes before a run, or they'd do the full ice vest, frozen underwear, um, arm in cold water, sort of uh-huh. cooling the skin. 
and cooling the skin turned out to be much more effective in terms of helping them run in the heat and also feel less hot. So that mm. it was a little bit of a surprise and some people still swear by slushies. <laughs> with, with the caveat to all of this, that pre-cooling, taking a slushie, freezing your underwear will not necessarily keep you from developing heat stroke or heat yeah. illness. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you are out in the sun, even if you've done a full freeze your bra, everything, <laughs> you start feeling sick, you start mm -hmm. feeling dizzy, just mm -hmm. stop. You need to mm -hmm. stop and find yeah. heat or find shade because mm -hmm. at that point you're really endangering yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, talking about that study, uh, have you noticed any uptick in the number of studies that include women subjects or <laughs> focus primarily on them, particularly in studies of running? You know, I thought of this when I read also the caffeine study a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no women were included, I believe, in that. And then in the hot bath study. So, you know, were ratios of subjects in the study were eight men to one lone woman. <laughs> yes, that's actually a really big uh, issue in exercise science is most of the studies, no matter what they're looking at, most of them involve men. Um, and there, there are several reasons for that. Um, one is just frankly, there tend to be more men who exercise just numerically. So it's a little bit easier sometimes to find them. But the bigger issue is women menstruate. And it yeah. does, the, the changes in our hormone levels across the cycle have a pretty significant effect on how we as women respond to all sorts of issues in exercise. We will actually burn more carbs or more fat depending on where we are in the cycle. And, and it's not a huge difference, but those sorts of things are enough to really throw off some of the results in these studies. And so scientists, to be fair to them, want to try and keep as many variables, um, you know, the, want to have to deal with as few variables as possible. So mm -hmm. if they can avoid having to try and deal with, you know, making sure that all the women who are in the study are at the same point in their cycles, mm -hmm. um, in order to avoid those issues, they often just don't include women. I think that is changing. Um, and it's changing for a number of reasons. One is that there are more women who are exercise scientists. The other is that the National Institute of Health is trying very hard to increase the number of women who are in all scientific studies. Hmm. They actually, they have instituted a new regulation that if scientists are doing uh, work with animals, with mice in particular, they have to include both male and female mice to oh, see well, what effects, oh. anything, exercise, drugs, anything, what effects they have on the animals no matter what their gender. And I think that will become more standard in exercise science uh, studies that involve people, but it is difficult um, because you do have to then factor in the role that estrogen, progesterone, and where we are in the cycle, what role all of that plays in the results. That makes sense. 
Hmm. Somewhere there's a rodent, Gloria Steinem, who's very, very trumpeting, that, very happy about that news. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's true. And, and yes. again, to be fair to scientists, I always ask them, why didn't you include women in this study? And they always say, we want to. We wish we could have done it this time. We want to do a study that includes perhaps only women um, of the exact same experiment in the future. A lot of it does come down to funding, but I think that we will be seeing a lot more studies in exercise science that include both men and women or that are exclusively about women. Good. Good. Yeehaw. It's about time. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about caffeine. Um, I'm, I, I might well be the only person in Portland who doesn't drink coffee. Yep. Uh, so I feel I get a pretty big performance <laughs> pop when I imbibe caffeinated things like goo gels or new <laughs> energy. Um, but you wrote recently about a study that found a regular coffee drinker can still get a caffeine performance buzz when needed yeah, like this... before, before a race or a challenging workout. This is one of those instances when I was very, very happy to read this study. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Um, I I will never avoid uh, writing about a study because it it undercuts something that I already do. But in this case, this uh, definitely supported my own um, very bad habit of drinking a lot of coffee. (laughs) Scientists have known for a very long time, and not only scientists, a lot of athletes um, clearly have known that caffeine does provide a performance boost. And and Mm -hmm. no one exactly knows why. Um, It may be mostly because it makes exercise feel a little easier. It may Mm -hmm. be that it makes you feel more alert and so you can go farther just because you're not feeling as tired. It may have physiological impacts. It may change the dopamine response, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. No one exactly knows why caffeine makes exercise feel easier and you can go farther, but it clearly does. There's a lot of research showing that. But most people had thought, including scientists, that if you were going to get a boost from caffeine, you had to back off from it if you were used to it. That those of us who drink more than we should um, <laughs> were essentially we were so used to it, our bodies were so used to it that we would not get the same kind of, of boost in performance uh-huh. from exercise. So you had to quit coffee for uh-huh. four or five days in advance of a race, and a lot of so people you have a raging headache. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh. Many people did that, but not me. Um, <laughs> however, this study, which I am very fond of, um, showed they it was a randomized trial. They were looking at people who either had a pretty serious caffeine <laughs> habit or had less of a, a caffeine problem um, or who almost never had caffeine. And they had them then exercise. And what they found was, they also, they gave each of them a a caffeine tablet um, Mm -hmm. and had them exercise. And then they, on a separate occasion, gave them a placebo placebo tablet that Mm -hmm. looked and tasted exactly the same. And there were no differences in terms of how well they performed when they took caffeine. It didn't matter if they were heavy caffeine users. When they had the caffeine pill, there still was a boost in their performance compared to when they had the placebo. 
So mm. you don't have to <laughs> stop drinking coffee in order to get a caffeine boost the morning of a race. So, and there was a measurable boost as well as did they report on whether they had a psychological, like, oh yeah, that felt a lot easier even though they were going harder? Both were true. Their oh. times were better and their, what the scientists call the ratings of perceived exertion, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically you say how hard the exercise feels, they tended to be lower. So mm -hmm. people were actually working harder and it felt easier when mm -hmm. they had this caffeine pill than when they mm -hmm. didn't. And again, mm -hmm. that was including people who normally drank as much as four cups of coffee a day. Wow. They still got a boost from caffeine, the caffeine pill, the morning of their mm -hmm. pseudo race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sweet. <laughs> Permission to drink more coffee. <laughs> I have a cup in front of me right now. <laughs> I love you, Gretchen. <laughs> well, from, from one of uh, the high points of my life to uh, something else, you've written a lot over the years and recently about back pain, which isn't surprising given the number of Americans <laughs> who suffer from it at one point or another. Can you talk about a few findings you've reported on, including the study in that recent article, about people who regularly run or walk briskly appearing to have healthier discs in their spines than inactive people. This was uh, another study that I was happy to write about because it <laughs> made me feel good about what I do. Um, mm -hmm. There has been a lot of controversy uh, among both doctors and runners about whether running might be bad for the back whether the amount of pounding that you absorb mm -hmm. might actually, over the long term, hurt the back. Uh, and so some people, I'm, uh, some doctors have in the past told people if they had lower back pain, not to run. So this study was designed to look at whether there was an association, a, a link between running and healthy backs. And what they chose to focus on were discs, the, the sort of, I think I describe them as whoopee cushions, that <laughs> uh, cushion between the, the bones in your back. Um, many people are, are familiar either from hearing about it or experiencing a, a ruptured disc, and, and that mm -hmm. is a really serious back injury and causes a lot of pain. So in this case, they wanted to see whether running was good for or bad for the discs in the back. And they gathered up a, a group of people who run and have been running for at least five years. So they were experienced runners and had no history of back injury. And some of them ran quite a bit, um, more than 30 miles a week, and some ran quite a bit less, um, as little as 10 miles a week or less. And they did an MRI and looked at all of the, the discs in their back. And it was pretty clear, in fact, it was very clear, that, that running compared to a, a group who didn't run, the runners had much healthier discs. They mm. were bigger and they had more fluid in them. And those are oh, both yeah. elements of the disc that make it healthier. Wow. And then the, the actually really interesting thing that they did was they had everyone in the study wear an accelerometer for a week while they were running and doing other things to see exactly sort of what force, what 
pounding was good for the back and what might not be. And then they had people get on a, a treadmill and run at those same, basically those forces to see how fast you had to run to have good things happen for your back. And actually turned out you didn't have to run at all. That one of the healthiest sort of paces for the back was a walk of about mm -hmm. four miles per hour, which is a, a very brisk, brisk walk. walk. I mean, for some mm -hmm. people that would still be almost a jog, but that mm -hmm. was the lower end of what was really healthy for the discs was about a 15 minute you know, mile, whether you're walking it or running it. And the top of the range of what was healthiest for the back was about 5.5 miles per hour running. Um, and it didn't hurt the back to go faster than that, but it wasn't necessary. So brisk walking, mm -hmm. fairly easy running, turned out to be really healthy for the discs in these people's backs. Let's hear it for the middle to back of the pack. Yeah. Yes, to exactly. Good to hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and speaking of that, uh, hearing you say one word um, totally brings up a question that I hadn't thought of before. When can we get the New York Times to stop using the word jog? <laughs> well, <laughs> since I use it um, my, myself, um, I, I don't know. And, and that actually is an issue that uh, my editors and I discuss is oh, good. what... Now, what what is a jog and how do you differentiate that from yeah. run and is one an insult or not? It, I don't consider uh -huh. it an insult. I, I actually oh. tend to use it when a study has looked at different running paces uh -huh. um, so that you really are seeing people who are going much slower and people who are going much faster. And it's easier to differentiate when I'm describing that, that sort of thing if I can use uh -huh. the word jog. Um, uh -huh. But there's no formal definition or yeah. even consistent definition, and, and that includes how I use it, um, of what jogging means, except that I think of it as running more slowly, uh -huh. but not in any way as a pejorative. I, uh -huh. I, I'm a jogger at this point in my life. I used to be much faster. I'm not now. I'm perfectly content to be running more slowly. Uh -huh. I consider myself a runner, and I would say I probably jog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're singing my song, Gretchen. I think we may have been separated at birth. <laughs> and again, we actually have discussed this um, with my editors at the Well blog, is whether we are insulting people when we use the word jog. Because I get emails saying, please uh -huh. don't use this word. Uh -huh. And I don't... I. I do not consider it an, an insult. I do not mean for it to be an insult. All it means for me is a slightly slower pace than mm -hmm. compared to so, someone who's going faster. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have like a cutoff like 13 minute miles and slower or, you know, 10 minute miles and slower or something like that. No, and, and it would not be 10 minute miles and slower. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, good. Because <laughs> oh, I just, I, I just sometimes, like, and I'm, it's not in your pieces, but like, I don't know, it seems like when there's um, like a, you know, like that woman runner who disappeared, you know, her, who got murdered in, was it, I guess it was Long Island or uh -huh. something? She was in some reserve. Like, I just kind of felt like they used the term jog a few too many times. Yeah, and, and it's just like, mm, is 
it is it a woman thing here? Like, do women jog and men run? That's what I want. Oh, I hope yeah. not. Um, I, I will say, I have never used the term, and I don't believe anyone in the the Well blog or the Science Times has used the term to refer to gender. Um, uh-huh. For me, it is a pace issue, and I uh-huh. usually use the term when a study compares pacing, which is uh-huh. not, that's not always the case, but there often are studies that will look at things like what is the ideal uh, amount and speed of running to increase longevity, and uh-huh. it will be something like a 10 to 11 minute mile, which is right uh-huh. at the sort of generally what I would consider the, the cutoff of jogging, running, and I would only use the term in that study because they, many of these studies are looking at things like, is running harder and longer mm-hmm. and faster better for you or worse for you? And in that mm-hmm. case, it's helpful to say, joggers <laughs> were running at a, a 10 to a 12 minute pace um, for three miles actually showed greater longevity than the runners who are going longer and harder, which is in fact true. Yeah, well, we're talking about that and and also talking about aging and running. Um, When I was in my marathoning days and much faster, I detested interval training. (laughs) But now I've read, and I know you wrote at least one article uh, comparing interval training for older people versus endurance training. Um, And the idea that actually for older people doing some intense interval work, uh, actually helps them it, and it, helps it, our mitochondria. Yeah, our mitochondria, our VO2 max, everything. Yes. And unfortunately, these are studies that, that, that do not coincide with my particular uh, <laughs> leanings in this case. I, yeah, I do now do intervals. Um, I do not love intervals. I yes. liked them much more when I was younger. They seem to be harder and harder with every passing more year. More caffeine, more caffeine. Um, <laughs> but um, there, are, there are several reasons that those of us who are no longer in our 20s do need to be doing intervals. And one is that VO2 max does decline with age. Um, that's right. your endurance capacity. And no matter how much you work out, it does still decline with age. And there's very good evidence that the only, really the only way to combat the decline is with intense exercise, and that means intervals. That will not stop your VO2 max from declining, but it definitely slows the decline. It it seems to have a much bigger impact on the heart muscle than longer, Mm. slower runs. And also, as you mentioned, the mitochondria as we age, the mitochondria within our muscle cells, which are the basically the energy powerhouses, they're the little part of a cell that makes the energy that the cell uses. In our muscles, the number and the potency of our mitochondria start to decline by the time we're in our 30s. And mm, by the time gosh. we're in our 40s and 50s, we have far less and far less potent mitochondria than we once did. Um, And so a lot of scientists are interested in what we can do to improve the health of our muscles as we age. And the the study that uh, you mentioned, um, which 
I did find really interesting personally, they actually compared a number of types of exercise, sort of longer endurance exercise um, and interval training and also weight training in terms of which of those had the biggest impact inside the cells of our muscles. And there really was no contest, it was intervals. Intervals changed the, the workings of the genes, uh, uh, more than 400 of the genes within the muscle cells. And most of those genes, these are in older people, people at past the age of 50, most of those genes were related to mitochondrial health. And the mm. number of changes in the genes of the, within the muscles was much, much greater in older people than in younger people. So doing intervals when you're past the age of about 40 is likely to have a bigger impact on your muscles than if a 20 year old does the exact same thing. Yeah. So we oh, do need to do it. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Well, I can well, tell a difference. I, I actually, I can. the one form of, of interval training that I actually do like, and I've written about this too, because there was some very good science showing that this is a very effective way to raise VO2 max is the 10, 20, 30 interval training, yes. which mm -hmm. is just so easy. I mean, you basically run as hard as you can for 10 seconds, then it's somewhat less hard for 20 and really easy for 30 and just repeat it at least five times, have a warm up and a cool down and you have a really effective interval training. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Hmm. No, it's. Um, I think it's a necessary evil after a certain age, and I'm ready to take it on. <laughs> Bring it on. It's not. It isn't fun, though. I. I actually. No. I think I liked intervals much better when I was <laughs> in my twenties than now. Even though I need them far more now, and I. Uh -huh. I am doing them, and will continue. Okay, and hill repeats that would count in there. Would yes, absolutely. Oh. Anything okay. that that raises your heart rate to what, what, I mean, they formally say at least 90% of your max, but informally that means about a nine on a scale of one to 10. And okay. you, if you're honest with yourself, it's very easy to know if it feels really hard. Right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and some people find it easier to do it on a stationary bicycle rather than trying to do it um, outside running because it can be easy to cheat. I, I know that from personal experience. <laughs> you can tell yourself you're working really hard and, and not. Um, and if you are on a, a stationary bicycle and just really ramp up the, the um, wattage, you have no choice. You have to work really hard. See, I think doing hill repeats on here in Portland, you know, there's houses all along these hills. Whereas you out in San Fe, you know, you could, no one would be watching you except for maybe a coyote. This, I mean, I got, I got eyeballs on me. Like I got, a, I got some pride carrying me up that hill. Oh, and you also have to watch what you say out loud when you press that hill. My golden retriever and my, my Aussie shepherd will watch me if I don't keep going. If I start walking, they look very unhappy. Nip at your heels. Yeah, I need to get one of these. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, so as the co-founder of a brand community that owes a great deal of its success to social media and gals sharing their running accomplishments and tribulations on it, I read with great interest your <laughs> April article with the headline, Running May Be Socially Contagious. <laughs> so can you talk us through that one? Yes, this was a, an interesting um, study using what what is known as big data um, to look at patterns of running behavior, um, what affects whether someone decides to run or not. And so they got data from a very large social media um, app that is basically you enter your running data. And they would not confirm to me that it was Strava, but it certainly sounded, a lot, like, sounded a lot yes. like Strava. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it, it, but I do not know if in fact it was Strava. Um, but it, it certainly included millions and millions of runners. And they got all of the data about uh, running for more than a year uh, of everyone who was using this uh, particular app. Um, it, it was all blinded. They don't know the actual people, but they had the data about who ran when and how much, which is interesting. But if you just compare, you know, this person's friend ran five miles um, and he only ran four, that doesn't really tell you anything unless you have a way to know that the person seemed to be influenced by what his friend did. And hmm. they decided to use weather as a way to modify the data. Because if it's raining or freezing or sleeting and you still go out and run, then something may be influencing you <laughs> besides your own um, your, your willpower. Um, and so what they did was they looked at people's running patterns compared to their friends, and particularly when the weather was bad. And what they found was people tended to be influenced by what their friends had done that day. So if a friend of theirs, and these are literally their friends on this app, meaning the people that they're connected to who would see their data, and if someone, someone's friend had run more than usual on a given day or had run faster than usual mm -hmm. on a given day, then the person that they were looking at would usually run a little more on that day and run a little harder. Mm. And especially, mm -hmm. well, first of all, especially if they were men, um, but, but women also, <laughs> w women were also influenced by their friends. And what I found interesting was people tended to be most influenced by their friends who were normally just a little slower or ran a little mm. less than they did, oh. <laughs> so it, it, which doesn't necessarily mean it was competitive, but it does seem to suggest for both men and women that if someone who you have felt you were maybe a little faster or a little more fit, um, if that person starts doing a little more, that seems to nudge a lot of people to do more themselves. And that it didn't matter if it was raining or snowing or anything, people generally did seem to respond to what their friends were doing, and especially mm. if their friends had actually gone out and run a little more that day. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we definitely find on our Facebook page, and we have for our Train Like a Mother Club, everybody has private 
um, Facebook groups. So if you're doing a marathon, there's all the marathoners for that season in there. And, you know, I mean, it can be if you're kind of like, oh, it's really hot out there. It's humid. <laughs> you know, I had a late night with, you know, the baby who's up crying a lot or whatever. Then you're like, oh, well, you know, Sandra went out and Samantha went out. I guess I really should go too, you know, so. That does seem to be exactly the lesson. And, and I talked with the, the lead authors who said it. they don't think that it was necessarily competitiveness that you know mm -hmm. someone thought oh no Joe Blow is going to get faster and better than me it seemed mm -hmm. to be that they felt if that person had done it that they could too it wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily oh, yeah. that they should or they had to but that they could even though the weather was terrible mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. there were other things mm -hmm. going on um, and, and it was pretty consistent across the course of a year that people if one person did a little more, the, the people who were their friends would do a little more. And so mm -hmm. the lesson, if there is one, would seem to be to have perhaps become friends on, online with people who might be just a little tiny bit behind you in terms of their training <laughs> because they do seem to nudge one another along. And, and it, that was not true if for instance, someone who would normally run two miles went out and ran 10. That did uh -huh. not seem to motivate anyone, any of their friends to do anything. That, that uh -huh. seemed to be that outlier behavior did not seem to affect what other people did. It was if uh -huh. someone who would normally run three miles did 3.8, um, uh -huh. that would seem to nudge their friends to go out and maybe run an extra half mile more than they otherwise might wow. have. So wow. th there was contagion, but not craziness <laughs> in how people <laughs> responded to other runners. It's also so funny, you know, like sometimes we give advice like, oh, well, if you want to get faster, you know, choose some running partners who are just a little bit faster than you are. So like, that's definitely what I gained from running with Ellison back <laughs> in the day was, you know, I had to keep up with her, but the reverse is true online. Find people who are a little slower, a little lower mileage. So. It, it, it does seem to be more motivating in that case. Um, it, hmm. I think there have been other studies looking at social media behavior among um, exercisers, not necessarily runners, but particularly people who are just starting to exercise are often actually demotivated by seeing what you know someone else has done if they're a lot faster. Mm -hmm. um, right. If mm -hmm. someone is starting to walk and they join a network where all of their workouts are uploaded automatically to their friends and they see mm -hmm. that their friends all went out and walked five miles and they didn't do anything today, that can actually be demotivating. Um, mm -hmm. They just won't do anything because they don't want to show that they only did two miles. So mm -hmm. th there's a lot about how social media affects people's motivation to exercise that we still don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's going to be more research into it given how prevalent social media is and how you know it seems like there's new apps about running and exercise all the time yes there, there's i think there's going to be a whole lot coming out and and so far it's been very i mean th the study about contagion was really interesting but there have been some really mixed results from how people respond to social media and also to just technology that tracks what they do mm -hmm. there have been a couple of studies that have found for instance that people who wear activity monitors mm -hmm. tend to lose less weight than people oh. who do not. 
um, oh. and no one is completely sure why that is. Um, oh. Some of them still exercise a lot, but they either for they're eating more or for some other reason. Many also, if they're wearing an activity monitor, will actually start moving less, hmm. perhaps because they didn't meet their target for that day. And that just says, you know, they, they decide at that point, okay, I give up. Um, mm -hmm. That There are a lot of studies showing that telling people exactly how much and how fast they are moving does not always motivate them to move more. So mm. I think before we start telling everyone that you have to wear a GPS watch and keep mm -hmm. tra track of your steps, we really need to understand how people respond to that information. And mm -hmm. it's likely to be very different if you're already a, a enthusiastic runner and just wanna mm -hmm. see that you're running a lot faster than if you're a newcomer to the sport who gets really discouraged by the fact that you're not going eight minute miles, um, mm -hmm. even though your friends are. So I, I think that's one of the next big areas in exercise science is understanding what really does motivate people and demotivate people to move more. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And on that note, Ellison's going to ask one final question because I, I, I know I honestly we could talk to you all day long, <laughs> but um, about how running can add time to your life. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. I, <laughs> I've, I've heard that running an hour can add seven hours to our lives, <laughs> even if we aren't what we call a model of healthy living all the time. Can you speak to that? Yes, you, you keep bringing up the studies that I was so happy to highlight because they, <laughs> they underline You're exactly welcome. what I want to hear. Um, <laughs> this was another big data study where they looked at um, uh, health records of thousands and thousands of people who have uh, gone through the Cooper Clinic down in Dallas and had um, full medical workups and also VO2 max tests and all sorts of things and also given them all the information about how much they, they move and in what ways, whether they're runners or they exercise otherwise or they don't exercise at all. And earlier studies had found that if people in this group ran at all, and that was as little as five minutes a day, that they tended mm -hmm. to live longer, and they lived usually about three years longer. Wow. But there were a lot of people who looked at that data and said, A, I don't believe it, and B, so who cares if you're running five minutes a day and you add three years to your life, if you've spent those three years running, you haven't really gained anything. <laughs> um, and so the researchers went back and looked at the data really specifically to see and they focused on running because there were so many runners in this group to really see how the amount of time people spent running correlated to how much longer they tended to live. And when they did all the math, they found that yes, people who ran, and that meant almost any amount of running, tended to live about three years longer than people who didn't. Um, and that included people who did other sports, but particularly people who were sedentary. And then when they really looked at the time that people were spending running, the most uh, common time was about two hours a week of running, which is pretty small. And when you factored that over 40 years, it amounted to about six months of time that someone would have spent running. And they gained 
at least three years. So mm, when they wow. factored in, do, did all the math, and again, this is, you know, this is mathematical. This is not literally one person um, mm -hmm. running and living longer. But they found that, in effect, one hour of running led to seven hours of longer lifespan. So wow. definitely people were getting more hours of life than they were devoting to running. So it's, I, I mean, it's great. It makes me really happy. I went out and ran for an hour after I read the study. Exactly. <laughs> and there's, obviously there's a limit. It, it, I think I say in the, that column, it, running is not going to make you immortal, but it does seem to add about three years to a lifespan, which is really substantial. And that is, sure is. I that plan is. to put that time to good use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drinking a lot of coffee. Yes, yes. <laughs> Petting my dogs. That's yeah, right. Yes, enjoying Santa Fe. It's such a lovely place. It is. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gretchen. This was really fun talking with you. It was my Thanks, pleasure. Gretchen. Thanks for having me. So, E, that was that was awesome. She has such an awesome gig there. I mean, to get to live in Santa Fe, to, to turn in such a highly respected column, and, you know, I mean, she obviously is so intrigued by what she does. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's a, a clear-cut case of doing what you love and doing mm -hmm. it well. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, speaking of that, uh, that's Dimity in the Train Like a Mother Club, so let's hear from her. Hello, hello, everybody. Dimity here in Denver with a little train like a mother club corner action. And um, this is a funny one and a short one. Uh, it's coming from the train like a mother 13.1 traditional challenge. And uh, it is, I'm going to say her name as best I can. This is coming from Dimitri. So please uh, give me grace if I have your name wrong. Um, it's Ariadne, I believe. Ariadne. Um, she says, you know you are a mother runner when your seven-year-old tells the TJ Maxx cashier he is sad because mommy's toenails are falling off. Yes, this was this morning. Poor cashier looked horrified. Mommy looked and felt as proud as hell. <laughs> awesome. Proud of falling off toenails. You know you're a mother runner. Uh, just a quick note, we've got... Um, Mostly all the plans open for November and December races if you are running a marathon. So if you're running a marathon in November and December, you can definitely sign up for the Train Like a Mother Club, either the heart rate or the traditional plans. Um, the half marathon plans are open in heart rate for November and December, and the half marathon for traditional will open uh, on July 20th. And uh, we got a lot of other good stuff cooking up um, for the rest of this year, as well as next year. It's crazy to think that I'm about to schedule waves for January, February races. <laughs> but that's what you do when you're a mother runner. You lose some toenails and you plan in advance. So have a great week, ladies, and we will see you next time. Okay, final request here for filling out the AMR survey. And we've sweetened the deal, folks. Everyone who completes the survey is entered to win if you've already answered the survey and if you still want to do it before the deadline, which is um, July 4th at, I believe, 11.59 p.m. Pacific time. So uh, we're going to have three randomly chosen winners from people who answer the AMR survey. It'll take you about 10 minutes or less, just trying to get a better picture of who it is in our tribe and how to better serve you, give you what you want from us. Um, and the three randomly chosen winners, they'll get a $50 gift certificate from the Mother Runner store and a $75 credit toward a program in the Train Like a Mother Club. So that's $125 value, folks, for three winners, for three lucky winners. 
And so the link is in the podcast write-up or go to anothermotherrunner.com slash survey. Again, that's anothermotherrunner.com slash survey. And Dimity and I are so grateful for you for answering that. Our podcast is a member of the ACAST network and our show today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy miles. Oh.